Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Josie Long. So it's the, it's the grey day after a few days of sunshine here in Brighton. I was, I'm very conscious that I, I do quite often talk about the weather at the beginning of Beyond Busy and I think it's because it really affects my mood, like I just really feel hungover today. And I haven't been drinking or anything. It just, I don't know. It just feels like if the weather's like this and there's no light and it it just makes me feel a bit uneasy. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's that seasonal affective disorder or something. Um, I certainly feel it in the winter, but yeah, like on one random day where the sun doesn't come out in the summer, it just kind of feels odd. Anyway, anyway, enough of my um, strange musings. So I'm gearing back to get into work mode, um, doing a thing for Ikea um, over the next couple of days, and then also a thing for a big car company up in uh, in Coventry next week, which is good because it means I get to be close to home. Uh, my dad broke his leg at work a couple of weeks ago, and I spent a good chunk of time, uh, like two weeks ago, uh, just being around the house and, you know, driving to Sainsbury's to get their shopping and all that sort of thing. So it'd be good to just be around for a couple more days and um, and give them more of a hand. Uh, and that's next week. Uh, so it's a bit of a soft landing back into the world of work. Uh, did this interview with Josie last week as well. So this is a fairly fresh one. Uh, and yeah, feeling really good about it. I'm, I'm going to be writing a blog post, uh, which I've just started, uh, just doing some reflections on the sabbatical period because I kind of feel like as soon as I get back into the nitty-gritty of work it will all just my memory of the sabbatical will just kind of fade away like my brain just works like that I don't retain information very well and so um, yeah I really feel like I should capture my learning around it as soon as possible so I'm I'm kind of working on that at the moment Uh, and I'll share that when it uh, comes around so um, this one is Josie Long Um, this is this is a really fun one to do I've been a big fan of Josie's for a long time so she is I guess primarily known as a stand-up comedian. She's known as somebody who, if you've not seen her stuff, uh, takes uh, some very creative and interesting risks in her work. She's kind of known, you know, critically as one of those very interesting comedians um, and has built up a really good sort of cult following. Like, it's always just a real delight going to a Josie Long gig. Uh, it's always really fun. And um, she's someone who is also a writer. She she's an actor. She was in Skins. She played she played a careers advisor in Skins, which is a funny thing because I, I always feel like with Beyond Busy, it's slightly like going to the careers advisor in the in the sense that we have like lots of different people from different jobs, and you sort of get to to try out what their life would be like a little bit. Uh, so she was a careers advisor in Skins, and um, she also uh, is a campaigner. She's been very outspoken on a lot of issues politically over the last few years. And what really inspired me is that she puts her money where her mouth is. So she hasn't just been feeling annoyed about politics. She's gone and done something about it. So she set up this charity, Arts Emergency. We're going to have this conversation in the offices of Arts Emergency and she'll tell you all about it. So let's get straight into it. Here's my conversation with Josie Long. I'm here with Josie Long. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm um, very good. So it's lovely to meet you. We're in um, Arts Emergency HQ. Yeah. Um, in in Dalston. 
Yes. Uh, and I used to I used to live in Whitechapel in East London. Did you? Yeah, I did for many years. But I still feel that Dawson's too cool for me. Ha. Like I shouldn't be. Well, you should be um, very consoled by the fact that you're looking out on this building here, which I consider to be the greatest practical joke ever played in history, <laughs> which is uh, apartments that basically start at £600,000 wow. and go up to over a million pounds. And they are built on what used to be Iceland and peacocks. And I feel like it's the biggest con in the world. And anyone who participates, is, is they saw you coming. So it's no longer cool. So, you know, like um, all new gentrified property developments have to have their own branding and their own sort of like, yes. you know, is there's like the peacock ice kind of. Oh, it's thing. Like, is like 57 a... East. Oh, right. <laughs> but it's very funny because. But they should have called it the peacock or something like this. The, oh, just my God. My really brain cold. is so slow today. My brain was like, that's exactly the sort of thing they would have. <laughs> they should call it like. Reykjavik flying. <laughs> Perfect. Concealed, but still there. God, I'm, I'm genuinely worried for how slow my brain is today. <laughs> so um, we were just saying before you press record, so you moved house like a few weeks ago. Yes. And you've just been doing the whole... Yeah. Getting the... And trying to find systems. Doing the nesting and all that stuff. So systems for, systems for home. Yeah. So that how... Just so, you know, have a pot for the keys. Oh, I see, right. Or just little systems of like, what shall we do with the cutlery? There's no storage, we have to invent something. But um, also I bought rugs for the first time in my life and I'm so happy about it. It's lovely. This this is a sign of middle age. (laughs) Yes, it's so sad. (laughs) But I feel like it's nice. Welcome to middle age, it's good. (laughs) I feel like if you want to do it, it doesn't feel frightening it feels comfortable which is exactly what they want comfortable shoes <laughs> soft furnishings quiet soft lighting and that's what i've got yeah cool um so i've got loads of stuff to talk to you about um and being as we're at arts of agency let's start with arts of agency so um i came to your show in london oh with the duchess the duchess that's yes right. the yeah. last one yeah and you as you often do, gave out a little program. Yes. Cool stuff. And in it was the manifesto. Yes, the Arts and Manifesto. And I read it and I was just like, fuck me, that is amazing. Ha, thank you. Uh, and then I put it on my Instagram um, and uh, and then was like, just moved to say to you, can you come and be on, be on Busy and talk about this stuff? Um, so why don't I just say to you, what is Arts Emergency? And you can kind of um, fill everybody in about what you've been up to with it. Well, Arts Emergency... Um, one of the points on the manifesto is we're a social justice organisation. Uh, charity is no substitute for um, justice withheld. Basically, we operate as a charity. We operate within the realms of the law as a charity. I feel like I have to say that because I'm a very political person <laughs> and there's a lot of political straitjackets on charities. So when I speak about politics, it's nothing to do with the charity. But... Um, Arts Emergency is an organisation that's set up to try and help empower and support young people who don't come from privilege so that they can pursue lives in the arts and humanities and study in the arts and humanities and basically just go for the lives that they really want and that they're really suited to and really talented uh, in and not what they feel they're told to do or they have to do. We're trying to sort of like uh, overturn the fact that if you're not from privilege, you constantly get told that certain things aren't for you, yeah. that everything's too competitive to try, or just simply that there's no money for you to do something, you know, that seems frivolous or that it's unwise for you to do something that doesn't seem vocational. And so we just sort of do that because we really want, like, in all of the culture of the United Kingdom, there to be 
a better reflection of the makeup of the United Kingdom. And at the moment, like, you know, culture reflects the structure of society. And so it's only really, it's becoming harder and harder if you don't come from money and privilege to be an artistic voice or like do anything that's perceived as a gamble or perceived as, yeah, like I say, like frivolous. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I've definitely noticed having written a study skills book a couple of years ago and sort of spent quite a lot of time with students at universities and stuff, kind of talking to them about that book and stuff, that their attitudes towards what study is and what knowledge is has really changed with tuition fees not only coming in, but then being, you know, tripled and whatever yeah totally and so it's, so it's got, and you know very naturally if, it, if you've got a system where it's nine thousand pounds to go to university and that's just the and that's just fee, the fees yeah, then you know obviously you're going to think about it more as an investment of money mm-hmm. as opposed to like as you're talking about here like a public good or yeah. something that you know people from all walks of society should do the stuff that they're best at rather than the stuff that's going to give them the best return on that investment yes definitely was that a big motivation for you in setting it up yeah it really was actually and it was it's really sad in a way because that was when tuition fees were three thousand pounds and it was a like this affront to us and we found that you know and and me and neil who set it up both of us had student loans at the time because we had no we didn't come from a family that could ever give us money um and so you know we we actually didn't even though fees existed when we both went to uni Neither of us were eligible to pay for fees, but we had student loans just for living and maintenance and stuff like that. And so we came out of university with student debt, whereas our rich friends didn't. And so even at the outset, I felt like tuition fees is an unfair system for the students themselves because it perpetuates the inequality. And then on top of that, once it was £3,000, it felt particularly cruel and... uh, you know, too much personal debt for people to gain. And the fact that, like, now it's tripled since we set it up is a bit depressing. But, um, yeah, we... um, It was... uh, Initially, I was like, what I want to do is pay people to go through uni so they don't have debts. Um, And then that became uh, what what the organisation is now, partly because it's all well and good if you need to fundraise loads of money. But then your whole organisation becomes about money, and it becomes yeah. about getting money off of big donors and it's hard to keep going and actually doesn't necessarily change a lot of the wider, bigger problems. Whereas what we're doing now and what we're able to do now is harness people's enthusiasm, uh, harness like-minded people who really do want a change in society, get all these people who are out there and it runs on energy and goodwill much more than money. It's yeah. quite a cheap service to provide, uh, mentoring people, supporting them, connecting them, stuff like that. But it also does help them because it supports them enough so that they can take on this ridiculous debt. But um, yes, I think it's definitely a bad system. I think it, at, at best it creates funding problems for the future. And at worst, what it does is it transfers this thing that's a societal good into individual debt. And if you put people yeah. into individual yeah. debt, they become embittered. Life becomes harder for them, for everyone. It frightens people. It's not a good system to have your society, to have all these graduates, each one having £80,000 in debt. And I say each one, the richest ones don't have any debts. Still, it's so unfair. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. And the poorest have the most because they also need more maintenance loans and you know have less support. So I think it's very bad. And so we set up parts of emergency to do that, but also to kind of to campaign for like our opinion of what the arts were and should be and our opinion of what education was. For sure. And do you think, I mean, something that 
is interesting to me about that is that you know around that time so there's been you know there's the 2010 general election yeah the sort of mood of the country and many things changed after that and i think a lot of people's response to that is to become very you know bitter about it or to be despondent and feel yeah. like they couldn't do anything what makes you different so why did you not just get really depressed about it or or even just as you did at the time like channel some of that into shows what made you go that extra step to say actually i'm going to set up, i'm actually going to do something really practical like about this a couple of things in that arts emergency manifesto is like do something start small start local keep going what gives you that drive to just do that rather than to just be like i feel powerless i'm going to do nothing um it's a couple of things i think it's partly because I've been lucky enough to be able to like hustle a uh, creative living. And so from that, I know that especially with what, what I do, like with all my projects, they're usually just like, I want to do that. Right. I need to set a deadline. I need to get other people involved so that it happens. And then I need to make it happen. And so I was quite used to kind of making things come out of thin air a little bit. Um, but on top of that, it was, um, it was a couple of things. I think in some ways it was like, me knowing that my life was very cushy and comfortable and my job was all about doing what I loved. Yeah. And I felt very much yeah. like I wasn't really doing anything that was genuinely beneficial for society. Like it's easy to but go... There's loads of people who have, their lives are quite comfortable and cushy and they don't do something or don't feel like they don't do enough. But they should feel guilty yeah. and they shouldn't be able to sleep at night. <laughs> I just felt very guilty. Like I, I had just moved in, I just moved to Hackney and I remember really distinctly, I lived under the flat of a woman who owned her flat and I rent so she like owned her flat and she was very and in my head I was like this yuppie person who reads the times oh what a yuppie and then I was walking across London Fields and this guy with his son went past me on the bike and they said to his son oh look at all the yuppies that have taken over our neighbourhood and I was really like oh yeah and then I was like whoa he meant me <laughs> like I'm the same from the outside and in my heart I think I'm like so different and so I kind of had this like political uh, radicalisation awakening where I met lots of wonderful activists who were doing things and I just wanted to see what I could do that might be more useful. On top of that, me and Neil were friends and we both just like knew that university had changed us and had given us so much and had given us loads in like a, like an internal way, like had freed us from a lot of kind of ways of thinking and told us that our lives could be whatever we wanted you know through that study yeah. and so we really just wanted to kind of harness that but we also knew that we'd like encountered loads of problems and difficulties and having 10 years experience on that we were like I want to go back and stop people having mm. to deal with what we had to deal with in terms of internal and external barriers so there was that and then on top of that I wrote I was talking about the Black Panthers on stage and I was talking about how before I knew anything about the Black Panthers. My opinion about them was like, oh, I think they were probably quite cool, but weren't they quite violent? Mm. Right. And then basically I watched a documentary about Fred Hampton, who's this incredible, inspiring guy who was uh, basically assassinated uh, at, at the age of about 22 because he was such a like inspiring leader of the Black Panthers, like articulate, warm-hearted, smart, humane. And yeah. I sort of learned a bit about the fact that these guys were socialists and that they were very kind of unfairly treated to put it mildly like you know those they were framed and people were in prison and been in prison in solitary confinement for 30 years for things they didn't do like they were considered a really dangerous element right 
and that's not to say that certain elements of it didn't really descend into sad things but at the same time like uh i was sort of blow it blew my mind that like they they were so maligned and stuff like that and i, I was doing some stand-up that was really frivolous about it where i was like talking about the fact that you watch fred hampton speak and he's really inspiring but also their vocabulary is so much of that time and place right so like he's giving a speech and he's like we say to pigs Daddy, we will not be held down. The people's law is lovelier than lovely. <laughs> and I was just like, this is so astonishing to me. Like, there's like strong, proud young men. And yet, like, it's also like so old fashioned and cute yeah. and strange. Anyway, this woman came up to me afterwards, whose name's uh, Carrie, and she's an artist. And she was telling me that she's been part of the campaign to free a man called Kenny Zulu Whitmore, who's been taken off of... Uh, solitary confinement but he's still in prison for a crime he emphatically did not commit and um he's one of the black panthers and so she's been like campaigning for him for a long time and she was like you need to write to him Mm. so i wrote to him and i told him that i'd felt really sad because at the time friends of mine had been with this group called uk uncut who were a great organization trying to sort of do activism that was warm-hearted and inclusive and they were really smeared on television. There was this, there were 145 people were arrested on chopped up charges. You had Boris Johnson on TV saying they were violent thugs yeah, when nothing yeah. happened. And I had friends of mine coming up to me and telling me off for being a part of it from lies. And I'd never had that experience before. And I like couldn't believe it. And I was really low. Anyway, I wrote to him, which is hilarious as well, because I was like, oh, me and my friends are sad. And it's like, you've been in prison on your own for 35 years for a crime you commit. But I, obviously I tried to be less clueless. But I said to him, like, how do you keep going and what do you do? Mm. And he said, you have to channel all your anger into positive activity. You can do it. And basically this is what he said. It's like the Black Panthers started as lollipop ladies. Like what they did was... Is that right? Yeah. Actual lollipop ladies. Yeah. So what they did... Uh, but men... But... Um, what they realised was that they're like part of why their form was because their communities were unsafe they were yeah. unsafe from like the police but also there were no oh, crossings okay. right because in their neighbourhood yeah. no one cared like the people cared but no one cared about them in their neighbourhood so they were like oh. well we're not going to put in crossings for kids so their kids were getting like you know involved in car accidents outside school and stuff like that so the things that they did to set up were local community initiatives wow. that were basically helping make their like community better so they started doing lollipop ladies where they would stop the cars so that their kids could go across the road and they started doing breakfast clubs so that their kids so would be nourished at school you know we're channeling channeling their anger into what can they positively do to change that neighborhood yes and all about education as well. yeah. and i like i don't want you to think i'm like totally oversimplifying things that were like got bigger and much more complicated stuff but it started out as community activism and, and this man uh kenny zulu whitmore who i would advise you write to and send him some love he's a really mm-hmm. inspiring man and um he wrote just such kind and generous letters and it was all just like that and i just thought it was like yeah like it, it's worth trying and Wow. So that's what I did it. Sorry, I'm so that's really cool. Um And I love the idea from Arts of Agency about the, is it called the Alternative Bullington Club? Um, it's the Alternative Old Boys Network. But oh, yeah. yeah, we've definitely talked about the Alternative yeah. Bullington Club. Um, well. And so this idea of like using mentors and giving people who don't come from privilege some of those same, same, same things that I guess you get from the Bullington Club or one of those kind of networks of just like, you know, inroads and finding yes. the right person who's in the right job 10 years ahead of you and... Yes. all that sort of stuff yeah exactly and just linking people together but also pardon me very much wanting to kind of 
it not to be the establishment because we don't agree with the establishment yeah. way of doing things. Like I, you know, take great objection to the fact that there's this conservative stranglehold, you know, and that uh, what what the coalition have managed to do to people, which does depress people, is sort of, or they had managed before the election, to sort of say to people, well, there's no alternative. What we're doing is, we're doing this because we're the sensible grown-ups mm. and you're not. Yeah. And we're the educated people and the successful people and the rich people. And we're telling you things have to be this way. And to us, it's like the opposite of what our values are and what we think is important and beautiful and needs to what society needs to be so we sort of really did want to try and like foster a network of people who were like well not only are we successful enough but we don't we're not that establishment and so we want to like long-term change the establishment to reflect better our views and i used to joke that what we're doing is setting up socialist sleeper cells around the country (laughs) but now i do not make that joke due to the charity's rules (laughs) about politics which Which i know a little bit about from my being on the center point board kind of stuff um so uh mentoring um in terms of your experience of it so uh were you particularly keen on helping and facilitating other people to have mentors because you'd had good mentors um, as part of your career? I think I'd always had, like, new proxy families. <laughs> like, I always, like, had people who took me in and looked after me a bit, like, definitely in my career and stuff. But I think, actually, that was something I was kind of... When I was at university, I had almost two very different experiences simultaneously. And one of them was that it was the most wonderful place and I loved it and I loved the course. And the other one was that I felt completely lost and the culture shock was insane yeah, and yeah. I made decisions that I wouldn't necessarily make because I didn't have places to stay and I didn't so that sounds full on. But I mean I didn't I I was very I didn't have places to stay in the holidays. I found uh having a lack of certain supports, not having money somewhere is complicated and difficult and so you went to Oxford, right? I did, yeah. And Oxford, you know, not known as the sort of bastion of working class kind of success, right? Yes, exactly. So was was the culture shock to do with everybody else came from a sort of privileged position and you didn't? or? Yeah, I guess so. Although I would be wary to say, you know, I, I went to a grammar school. Yeah. Like, that is a massive privilege. I didn't come from any money and actually, like, my parents' situation, like, got worse and worse for them, like, financially and stuff like that. But, like... I I was still very lucky to have like gone to a grammar school, have have supportive mum that really wanted me to do well, that who was educated herself, like lots of stuff like that. So like I wasn't entirely without privilege, but at the same time, like I have about three friends from Oxford who share similar background to me. Yeah. yeah. And we were the only guys. <laughs> like like it, it's a mad thing. And I the culture shock was it even took me a year to realise the extent of the culture shock because mm. I just had no idea there was this whole strata of society that was that wealthy and that privileged and what that meant and what the knock on effects of that meant. And to be honest, at university you're almost least exposed to that divide because yes, they can all afford to go out or eat or blah blah blah. But you are living in halls together and studying together and so in lots of ways that divide is actually lessened for the most it ever will be yeah, during right. your life. Yeah. And that's why I have this really aggressive thing of like, people from least privilege should go to the most elite institutions. But I, what I really want is I want to staff like Oxford and Cambridge with like people from backgrounds where they would never encounter the, living in these stately homes. And I'm probably aware they will piss off a lot of people established there. <laughs> but what I want to do is like, if you've not been to, if your school looks like, for want of a better example, Hogwarts, 
then you at university should go somewhere where the buildings are new, where the mm. where it doesn't have these kind of like hallowed cloistered environments right if your school had you know prefabs that are falling apart or is you know an academy where your education has been commodified you're the people that deserve and should go to oxford because then it's like a leveling of things i mean i haven't fully thought this theory through and and i'm not saying that this is the other thing and it's tricky because the 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 the, then the criticisms we get is like, well, you know, why why don't you look after all young people? And, you know, what are you saying? That people from privilege can't make art? And I'm like, no, they can, and they do. Yeah. They're not the ones who are finding it difficult. Mm. You know, if, or they're struggling because all artists struggle, but they're already, they've already got their stuff going on, and these are people who don't have that, and we're supporting them and stuff like that. We've also been criticised for ageism by not supporting older people okay. who want to get into the arts. To which I would say, we cannot do everything. <laughs> <laughs> and there are also, you know, there's thousands and thousands of charities out there. So there's yeah. it's bound to be someone else that can pick that up. As yeah, well, pick right? up That's that slack. How, how it goes, you know. um, do you think that, I'm interested just in terms of not just with Arts Emergency, but I mean, even the decision to start Arts Emergency with your friend is that you could consider that a risk because it's not what you were known for at that point. You know, you, and you, I guess, principally known as a stand-up, is that yeah. fair to say? Um, and it sort of strikes me that also creatively, you're someone who likes taking risks. Um, and the thing that really um, uh, stands out for me in that is that show you did a few years ago where you've got some flowers on stage. Oh, yeah, stage. those, yeah, yeah. And there's a bit in the show where That's you just... Bit. You're sort of pretending to be David Cameron and yeah. then you just kick the flower and, <laughs> yeah. and it, for me it was so, so exciting because it's like, oh no, but those are the props that you're doing and it's like messing with the sort of structure of what stand-up should be. Oh, cool. So that's like Thanks. a really small kind of example of that. But then even just like the, the risk career-wise to to obviously put stand-up a little bit on the yeah. back burner so that you can focus on this arts emergency project and get that going like so tell me about risk and how you see yourself and risk and your relationship with risk I think it's two different things like firstly because I didn't come from any money like you know my mum we really didn't have any money and my mum was always really worried about it and it would always be kind of a a part you know she'd obviously was trying really hard to support us and stuff but like she would always be sort of saying oh we're really close you know things are really close to the bone things are really difficult and and we I always had this sense in the back of my mind like there's not a safety net like when I left to go to uni I really couldn't move back Mm. so it was I never had that safety net so when I left uni I was just like well I have to just make this work and I just did temping and I and also I think it's good if you do grow up with no money like you're used to having no money so it's not an issue to begin with at all my problem now is I'm no longer used to having no money so I think it would be harder for me now because I'd be like but I wanted to buy a coffee for no reason <laughs> so I'm very very privileged now but um the the other thing that ties in with that is that like I think I'm I don't consider stuff I do a risk at all and I think it's a blessing and a curse like I think I just have this sort of bullishness to me and I'm quite bound up in what I'm doing a little bit and I think I'm quite emotional in how I choose things. So when it came to what's emergency, it wasn't a case of like me going, oh, I'm scared to do this, but I really think... It was like, I have to do this or I won't be able to sleep at night. Yeah, me and yeah. Neil like were totally obsessed by the project. It meant everything to both of us. It was like such a big deal. So it just sort of became... I, I had to do it because I was desperate to do it. And it's the same with stand-up. Like, 
and with wanting to be a writer and a creative person like it's all I've ever wanted to do really like in varying ways like I want to try a bit of every creative thing but it wasn't ever an option not to do it especially once I left uni and I had to do temping and I hated it so much I was like (laughs) there's no other like way I have to make this work yeah and so like but sometimes some of the decisions you could make as a stand-up might be you're following that sort of burning passion to do the thing that you want to do yeah and that might be at the risk of or like it, it might uh, negate the ability for you to make loads of money out of it, for example. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of compromise, sometimes a compromise in terms of creativity with some of those things. I, but again, I would say I am not a strategic human being. And so I just <laughs> like the amount of things I've fucked up in my career without realising, like most things I've fucked up, I haven't no, like realised or noticed because I try to do right to what I think I would need and want to be yeah. doing and I try to put in plans to that but most of the time it's me organising it so quite often it like doesn't go it, it happens what's a good example of that what's a good example of something that you realise later that was a bad move or, or something that you shouldn't have done uh, uh, just little things like so me and my friends and I wouldn't take it back me and my friends made some short films five years ago and we tried to develop a feature film but we wanted to go with people who were very like um, on a level with us like starting out we kind of pulled a lot of energy into developing this feature idea and it didn't come off the ground developing the script as well and it would have been better if I'd have tried to go through more official channels like larger people right, in some yeah. ways because I think I would have received better advice and the reason I didn't is because I just really like doing things my own way and I sort of get things in my head and it's mm. partly because like with stand-up you've got this voice inside you that you trust and it tells you when to time things and it tells you what's funny and you develop that voice and that sensibility if you're trying to develop your own stand-up identity but the problem with that voice is it's not actually always right about every decision but you trust it because you're like I have my own internal voice that knows what's what and like so I did this thing on uh, I did this Bear Grylls the Island show and my internal judgment was like don't worry I've got you and half the time it was right but half the time it was just wrong and I was just nervous but I trusted myself too much so like it's funny it's a very interesting thing like I wouldn't change who I am and how I approach things because I do love the art that I'm art do love the stuff that I make but sometimes I look back and I think gosh my personality so like you're saying about money like it would be kind of amazing to have made a lot of money but unfortunately like I know that like my values, it's not that focus. So I would never look at things from that perspective first and foremost. And also there are other things I put in front of that even when it's offered. So I've been offered a lot to do commercial work, but I don't do it because I know I would hate it and it would make me cringe. And I feel like it would damage the people, not massively, but I feel like people wouldn't want to come and see me in the same way if they felt I didn't have that, you know, and like... Yeah, you have a certain ethos to what you do. Yeah, and and I feel like I have to be consistent. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then it was a like with money and stuff as well, like politics. I just didn't think about it in a strategic way. I was like, this is what I think, this is what I believe. I have to be outspoken about it or I won't be yeah. able to sleep at night. And I remember once I so I got nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award three times in a row and I was very pleased about it. And I remember the second time that I came that I got nominated, I started talking about politics, but it was very explicit. It was explicitly anti-Tory and it was angry about what they were doing and it was explicit in what I was talking about and it was like critical of specific people and stuff like that. And I remember the woman who runs the award said to me like, oh, you're making a really big decision here. Mm. Like you're making a decision. And at the time I was like, what? What are you talking about? And I'm not. I'm just talking yeah. about what I talk about. And now I'm like, oh, I see that like, 
you can't necessarily come out and be very, very critical of the establishment and then expect people to like make you on a game show, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like, but I feel guilty because I want to say, oh, I'm like a big risk taker. And I suppose in some ways I am because I do things for the sake of them. But in other ways, I would say I'm like very timid. Like there's lots of things I haven't done. Like I've never moved abroad and I've wanted to do that bit. Like mm. uh, there are things I'm still frightened of and don't do. But yeah, like I should take act- acting classes, but I'm kind of scared to. So I just do acting and hope that that's okay. <laughs> um, What's that about? Why are you too scared to do acting classes? Uh, it's probably just from still old hangups from being young and wanting to study drama and being told that I shouldn't do it and it's not an option and wanting ah. to pursue a career in like stand-up and acting and going for advice and then being like it's really competitive you shouldn't do it what you really need there is um wouldn't it be good if there's like an organization that some <laughs> mentors to yeah, yeah. get Help over those things audition. that are limiting your belief system and... yeah it's funny isn't it that's an iron like that's a big irony isn't it yeah a little bit but i'm trying to get over it i really am it's yeah. just um it's funny and also do you know what's really interesting is like confidence like I feel most confident on stage like literally when I'm on stage I feel powerful and bulletproof and in charge and like like I carry all of my achievements wear them with me you know and the rest of my time I don't feel in that way you know I have a lot of doubt as to whether or not I've done the right things or whether or not my career will continue in the way I want and stuff like that really? yeah yeah um why do you think after after having so many shows that have done well and been critically acclaimed and you've toured and all this kind of stuff, like why why hasn't your confidence increased over that time? Or do you think it has increased a bit but just not enough? It's increased in terms of when I'm doing what I do, which is very useful. And it's increased in terms of like feeling like I like and trust my opinions and stuff. The reason it's not is a couple of things. Like firstly, the problem with stand-up is it's like castles in the sand. So, you, like, I was really like, I've pissed up a reputation at Edinburgh, but Edinburgh is a fast-flowing river. Like, yeah. you're there for a bit and then away for a bit. And the same with stand-up, like, even the shows that I've recorded, the reason stand-up, I think, is, like, really good and exciting and magic is because it's in and of the moment and the space, really. Mm. And so even when it's recorded, you never quite get to keep it. So it's not like making a TV show or a radio show or a film where you're like, there's the object, you're like, oh, I did that, but oh, it's gone. And it's a slightly different object every night and then yes. it's a different object the next year. And- yeah, and then 10 years later you watch it and you're like, oh God, that's so off that place in time now. Yeah, right. And so it's of that. Also, it's just like being a woman and being a left-wing woman and being online and being outspoken, you receive a load of abuse all the time. Yeah. And that's really intense. And when I was younger, I used to feel like you can just shake anything off. And now I'm starting to realise that like all things that are traumatic impress upon you and you have to deal with all those things and naturally things you say all things that are traumatic yeah Yeah. and like so like you know it's like if your cat dies or something you think oh I'll get over that you know I love that cat but it's a cat I'll be alright but no you've got to properly get over it and that's bigger than you think you know I don't know so uh, let's talk about like criticism and trolls and all of that so you've had your fair share of it right and yes. like um, a little while ago you had that weird video thing oh yeah um, and I have to say I watched it and just felt just at first I felt really unsettled for you oh see I didn't watch that guy's video because I know better yeah well good uh, <laughs> first I felt really unsettled for you the second thought I had was 
oh my god like his the level of his arguments is so like, like it was very simplistic mm-hmm. um and totally didn't want it didn't want to engage, didn't want to engage with what you were trying to say in that particular thing but obviously then what happens is you get all these people sort of jumping on it's it like a online uh, and i remember seeing something on twitter around the time that that was happening yeah uh, it might have been you tweeting or someone else tweeting about it but like even though you know that's kind of you know there's a very there's a very kind of organized thing of now go and attack her so you know not to take that personally from that sense but you must take that personally it's not even, level, like. yeah it's it's not even a question of it so the first time this sort of sort of vague thing happened to me was when I did my first stand-up show I won an award and I was so innocent and I loved it and I was like so thrilled and then there was a particular comedy forum where people took pages and pages and pages to kind of say how awful I was most of them haven't right. seen me and, and also like it became like sexualized and very physicalized and very like sometimes violent and threatening and they would go to shows of mine to record them to slag them off and stuff like that and it's this thing of like at that time yes these people weren't speaking to me but once I was made aware of it it was really hard yeah. not to know it was going yeah. on um, then the, the, some of those people moved to a different f- site that was a specific kind of hate site that was set up so people could vent their hatred at things Wow! and this wow. one couple of guys a few of them one of them is an estate agent in Sid Cup and that <laughs> life is your punishment but um they this hate site was like very weird and was like reams and reams and reams but then it became very weird because they put sock puppet accounts of me saying like horrific things and really violent threats and sexualized threats and that lasted a few more years and eventually wow. that sort of stopped but those things did get in the way of things for me in a way because partly it was because my male colleagues in the main part didn't have to deal with that sort of mm. thing uh, and partly because it was kind of just before that kind of thing became uh, it came into people's awareness so yeah. I sort of took it all on board and people would give very bad advice they'd be like don't let it get to you rise above it and it's like no this should be reported to police <laughs> then after that like on Twitter regularly I would get like you know occasion like abuse and stuff but then sometimes just people being obsessive sending me death threats I took that to the police and they were quite wow. shit about it and basically this is a, that was all for being a comedian not even being political yeah that was for existing as a woman and being thrilled about it that was literally it, it was for supporting a comedian that these people loved like it was nonsense but so, having had so all that on so, so back to the risk thing so did you not at the point of doing the first show that was overtly political think this might increase the level of tension that I get online or the, the I even, even just I'm going to have to deal with more of that shit rather even if you don't necessarily again I don't think I anticipated it which is dumb yeah. of me but I think also it was the case that I was like well I've already been through all of this for nothing <laughs> so now I'm saying an opinion fuck it at least I'm saying an yeah, opinion right. and it's, like, it's been a bit like that <laughs> I like that actually. yeah I might as well yeah like, I've already got it I know what it's like to have all these like threats and stuff so it is really bad but the problem recently has been like well firstly this guy I didn't watch his stupid video because I really don't like it's just the assertion that he's so much brighter than me and the assertion that what he's doing is so logical and and it's so pointless and stupid and it really makes me sad because I feel like his whole worldview comes from this fetishization of his idea of what logic is and this stupid like debating club mentality that deliberately and like egregiously misses the points of things to get views I don't even deep down feel like he's sincere I think he's like a sad man who's like you know his whole life is begging 14 year olds for clicks you know it's no fun 
Um, but the thing that's kind of weird and bleak about it is I feel like that there's like a generational thing where people are taking this tranche of people doing these like emotionless, pedantic videos that are quite hateful and they're treating them as if they're an authority and as if they mm. are able to educate them. Yeah. And and so then going on from my video, like making this point where they're like, you said, you fear, the far right more than you fear is like terrorism. <laughs> right, and I would say like, I, I do, I do. Yeah. And firstly, like what pisses me off even more is like, the whole shtick is like, don't be afraid of terrorists or they win. So like, I'm doing what they're telling me to do. Secondly, what really pissed me off about a lot of the abuse was, I live in central London and I use public transport all the time and I'm out and about performing. If anyway, if anything, I'm putting myself in that risk yeah. of being part of something, right? And I still don't want to be afraid of that because as far as I'm concerned, Islamic terrorism is like something that can't be solved by a shift in mainstream culture. Whereas the far right has been enabled by mainstream culture mm. and that needs to be accounted for and like these things need to change. And also like a lot of the abuse I was getting was, you know, it was just Islamophobia because I basically said people are victim blaming these people who've been attacked outside a mosque. I want to show solidarity with the victims of this attack. After that attack, it was because I was talking about that specific attack that the vitriol was like unleashed on me because the subtext of it is how dare you have sympathy for people who, you know, have literally nothing to do with Islamic terror, nothing whatsoever, but how dare you have sympathy with these people that we're scapegoating. And so like the whole thing is like so fucking vicious and stupid and annoying. But what is hard is like, these things are able to vandalise your entire online life. So they're able to put a thousand dislikes on a video you've put up about mm. books. They're able to, like, call you a cunt who deserves to be killed under Sharia law um, under, a vid- under a radio show you've made about astronomy. Yeah. So it's like... Yeah. I'm trying to write about it at the moment and say that, like, not everything is for everyone. And most things are actually not specifically tailored to Nazis. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's not right that they should be coming on every online platform of anyone who dares to not <laughs> agree with them. You know, it's a show about gardening. It's nothing to do with you. Don't comment on it. And I think it's sad, like this culture of the pylon, it's sad, all this bitterness, and it's sad. And I think it's like, it doesn't deeply, profoundly affect me, but it makes mm. me think, I don't really, I don't want to waste my time on this, it's toxic. And yeah. I don't want to waste my time online yeah. at the moment. I want to focus on my writing and my life and my love and everything like that. But it's a it's a tricky thing because I don't want people like me to feel discouraged from participating in online discussion. Yeah. And that's what happens to women and to left-wing people and to people of colour. Like, the people that oh, I yeah. know who... They're just authors. They're not the prime minister. They're like talented authors and poets and performers. And every day they get people put, like, deliberately using the most horrific terms of abuse to them just because they have a Twitter because they were participating in discourse, like, yeah. and then, like, that needs to be sorted, like, they, it needs to it be... just feel like if, if we were sat here before Twitter existed or before the internet existed and said, in 30 years, this is the stuff that those people will have thrown at them for being a woman, for being yeah. a person of colour. But look at it even back then when attitudes weren't, you know, where, where there were, probably was more misogyny and more racism. Yeah. And you'd still think that's mad that that would happen to people every day. I like suppose it feels the scale like a of it, I think, like thousands, 
but that's like what the internet's managed to do is it's managed to like get people organized yeah so like like diane abbott's speech in parliament uh if you see it she talks about the abuse she's had for 35 years and it's like chilling it's so upsetting because like you know she's an incredible person who's achieved so much and yet the amount she's had to put up with and she says in it like she says like 30 years ago people would have to get a green pen and they would write you their horrible letter <laughs> yeah. and they would go and post it's it it's a barrier to entry <clears throat> mm. yeah. you know you had to be slightly more committed but that having been said like I don't even want to make light of that sort of thing because you know people were still having to endure like all yeah. kinds of stuff in person and, and this the thing is like I don't know whether it's a case that like there are some men who feel uncomfortable with their levels of anger or misogyny or whatever so they're pushing it online I, I don't know what it is I do however know that in my experience it's almost entirely been male I feel like there's some kind of male phenomenon going on here that's not been analysed I know it's not all men I know you're listening <laughs> and it's not you believe me I know that but I think there's something going on that is about anger and it's about something to do with how men are being treated in society and what what's going on with them yeah. and the things that are happening as a result of it are like linked you know like online radicalization of young men whether it means that they then commit islamic terrorism or whether it means they then abuse people online or whether it means that they then become ardent members of the far right like stuff's going on yeah for sure um i'd also argue that one of the reasons why you might be more likely to be targeted than say other female comedians is that you are a voracious optimist huh like you have this thing about optimism, right? So like mm. your show titles are things like "Trying is Good," "Romance and Adventure," all of the planet's wonders. Like it's like it's yeah. just joy, joyously optimistic. Um, where do you get the optimism from? Um, I think it's just. Uh, it's funny. It's interesting because like I was talking to my boyfriend before we moved in a little while ago, and I said like, "But I'm a very positive person," and he was like, "Well, you are, but like I think you've actually been quite beleaguered." And, like, mm. I think what I want is to bring the best of what I have on stage. And I really, really want my shows to be positive. And I feel like that's what, what I want my art to be. I want it to be about, like, me trying to be my best and about trying to find the best things and about, like, trying to kind of be positive and hopeful. And, and it's definitely who I am and what I believe about the world. But, like, I think if you spoke to my boyfriend, he'd be a bit more like, she's always grumpy. And she's not angry about this, that, the other. And I think it's, like, it's complicated. I, I, I tell you what's been amazing, though. It's so weird, like, the election and how well the Labour Party did and how well ideas that I truly believe in and values that I hold are now polling in our country has been the most incredible tonic for optimism. Mm. Like, I was really, really... My last show was called Something Better, and it was kind of about, like... Try, it was about this book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit which I really recommend she's amazing she's wise and she's so positive and so practical like she's like this is what people have done this is what you can do don't forget this that the other like so sort of like think this move on and um, but it was partly because I felt so like the situation was so dire and, dire and difficult and um, then the election I just feel like I didn't realise the weight I was carrying in terms of trying to keep the flag flying and keep optimism going and then since the election, I've been like, yep, we all yeah. agree, everything's fine. And this weight is just lifted where I feel kind of so, like, supported and vindicated and stuff like that. So it definitely helps to have Labour polling at 43% when the Conservatives are polling at 40%. And ladies and gentlemen, it'll only go higher. I hope. I'm, I'm not trying to 
And so uh, we were talking just before we very conscious of before I politicised this. Uh, so <laughs> before we uh, pressed record, you were talking about how, like, with arts emergency, yeah. you were like really sort of consumed by the idea, and it's like that whole thing of um, I was uh, talking to you about that Gilbert and George yes quote, yeah. which is um, one of Gilbert and George. I can never remember which is which. It's like Anton Deck, isn't it? <laughs> they have uh, to stand on the yeah. right side. Yeah, and he said, "Any painting that we don't paint will not be painted by somebody else." And you were saying, "Yeah, like it, a, a big part of that sort of motivation is like wanting to put stuff out there and wanting yes. to create stuff." Um, so, does that mean? Do you feel like you're do you feel like you have a good work-life balance? Like, do you feel like you uh, are good at switching off and just how do you see yourself in that? I want to say that I do. And I feel like, so I did my first solo show in 20, 2006 and for about kind of five years, my life was very relentless. Like do the show, tour, 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 go to Melbourne, write a new show, do the show, tour, 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 and like fit other things around it. But it was like really intense. And I think also like to, to be able to make a living free stand-up, I had to spend three years out of uni, work a day job, gig every night, mm. you know, have one night off, if you're lucky, every couple of weeks, you know, and like, it just was like that. And that's how hard it had to be. That's how hard you have to work to like, feel like you're training as a stand-up. And the same with touring, like to feel like you're developing your voice, you kind of do need to gig nearly every night. And like someone, like the hardest working comedian I know is Sarah Pascoe. And she just gigs so much. And she always has them. She gigs two, three times a night if she can. Mm. And she works in the day. And it just is that intense. And then in about 2013... 2011 I tried to tour a bit less 2013 I took a summer off and I tried really hard to like and I got really into like outdoorsy things and yoga and like trying really hard to like put more elements into my life and make sure that I better maintain my friendships and make sure that like I like built more to myself and stuff and I want to say oh I kept that up but then last year I toured so much that I got ill and Mm -hmm. then I've been quite ill and so I know that I've not been doing it as well and I also know that, like, for whatever reason, like, I had a bit of, like, upheaval in my personal life. And now me and my boyfriend just moved in together and I feel really settled and thrilled and, like, I have a home. And I think that, like, I'm getting better at it. And I also think that I haven't been said, like, I never do as much work as I'd like to in a day. And I never <laughs> do you know what I mean? I never, I set myself a target and I'm always half an hour late for the start of it when it's creative work. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so even when I'm, like, overworking myself... I still feel like a slacker because I'm not quite doing what I feel is like, like in my dreams, I'd be like, right, you're going to get up at eight, even though you've never willingly got up at eight and it's always been horrific. And then you'll do an hour's exercise because that's your best thing. Then you have a very quick breakfast straight to the office and then this, the other. And the truth will become like, you know, you'll get up in my dreams at nine and you'll do medicine (laughs) sport, but probably not. And, you know, so it's sort of, I think what I try and do more now is I'm better at accepting myself like my limitations yeah and I'm better at finding ways to like be productive within my own stupid brain and my own like body and so and just not beat yourself up if you don't have that perfect day yes definitely I'm really good at that (laughs) now Mm. but my yeah my problem is that like yeah I think I think I've got an all right balance like I don't think anymore that I'm like working myself too hard but and I I like have like things that I really recommend in terms of how to like do stuff like doing creative work at the start of the day for an hour and a half that's basically all you need to do for a day to achieve what you need and like 
I have the same as writing. I can't write if I'm working on a book or something. I, I can't write after about one in the afternoon. Yes. In the morning, it's fine. It flows out. But in the afternoon, you're just it's like so tired admin up. time all you can do is like sort your emails or yeah. something because it's not going to happen yeah I don't know I'm sorry I feel like I'm waffling I want to be like tell you exactly what I think about my work life balance but that's a great tip though like I mean you know just focusing on the best hour and a half of time yes know, and that morning energy I mean that's a great productivity tip, right? yeah and that's all you need creative, yeah. creatively you don't need more than that you won't get more people lie and they're like oh I work from nine till six on creative <laughs> stuff it's bullshit <laughs> they'll get an hour and a half's work done creatively yeah. the rest will be like freaking out or moving stuff around or game shows or whatever. yeah, yeah. Um, but I tell you what also changed my life is discovering sport like I was really bookish and then when I was about 25 24 I started working out and it's got more and more into my life things like like climbing and uh, hiking and swimming outdoors and all of those things they're so different to what I did oh and I did maths as well I did oh, right. things that were different to what I did yeah. and that was a really cool. good way because like if you're swimming you physically like in cold water you can't be thinking in the same way yeah. and if you're like doing maths it's a different part of your brain to writing and so I like tried to find things that weren't my thing so that when I was doing them, I by necessity couldn't be doing my thing. I see. And did you also feel like that um, increased your creativity or like did it help you creatively to, to put your brain in different places or was it more just about that's the way of switching off? No, it does help you creatively because the whole time you're doing the other thing, the back of your brain is like, oh no, I should be doing the thing. So when you start right, again. Okay. And also the good thing with like running and stuff like that is it is so nice for like lucidity of like yeah, thoughts yeah, yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. Oh, and the other thing is, like, I'm trying to get a better work-life balance in terms of public and private. So I was just mm. on Twitter the whole time. And again, like, on Twitter, any asshole can be rude to you literally any time they want. You're, I feel beholden to reply to people. I feel, like, constantly, like, I'm worried about what I'm saying, whether it's the right thing. And so just to decide that I'm going to take more time for myself where I'm in private, where I'm not broadcasting, where I'm not sharing... Is like and that oh, means taking that stuff off your phone. Yeah. And, and do you set times where you're like, this is when I'm going to be back online, or like, how does that how does that work? Well, so at the moment, I'm just literally I don't want to be on Twitter, yeah. and I don't want to be on Twitter till at least October, and I probably won't go back. Yeah. And I killed my Facebook, and I'll go on Instagram because I really consider that to be like gentle and not not like a public persona thing, like just yeah. like your yeah. friends putting up pictures of cakes. Um. But that's been really amazing to just suddenly go, I don't have to like give myself away the whole time. If I want, my life is for me and my friends and what I choose to give away, I'll give away on stage or in print or on a thing. Do you know what? The more of these conversations I have, the more it always comes back to, it's not about work-life balance, but it's about that public-private kind of thing. And, you know, online and your online persona is like, it's a huge thing for everybody to manage. Like, it's, it's amazing how often that just comes up as a theme like when I'm talking to people about work life balance well it's really shocking yeah. like, I only like as you're saying it I'm like oh I don't know what I think about it. and then it's like oh shit yeah this yeah. thing was ruining my life and now I feel like I have my life back yeah. and I feel joyful about my creativity as opposed to kind of beleaguered and stuff nice and then um, you've got to be somewhere oh, shit, I'm I'm gonna, so, I'm I've got to go let, to physiotherapy for my knee um, so um, let's talk about your tour so you're touring in the autumn right yes um, the, uh, tell me the title of the tour the tour is called Lefty Scum and I worry I've been too explicitly overtly political but it's me and uh, my boyfriend is in a double act and a dear friend Grace Petrie who's a beautiful folk singer and we called it that because we were before when the election was just called before the election we were like what we want to do is just meet with people who might share our political views and just 
give them a bit of fun and be like, don't worry, guys, we'll keep the flag flying. <laughs> Whereas now it's a little bit like, we'll go and we'll be like, hey, who's door knocking? <laughs> who's excited about the future? So it's kind of wonderful. Um, nice. So that's through the autumn and we'll put the dates for this oh, yeah, in the podcast show notes and, and share that around. Thank you. I hope I don't yeah. seem too ranty about online and stuff. It's I, weird to well, talk I think about it's, it. I think it's been such a huge... Yeah. thing for you right that yeah, it, it really has this summer. I mean it was on my list of I want to talk to you about oh, critics God. and trolls and I stuff. hope it's not too boring so um, I think it's fascinating because I, I honestly like the idea that someone can't be on Twitter without having that level of like and you know the way you described it as being it's every day I'd be having this so I'd just be at home and like that's yeah. it's weird that's mad to yes. me and like, you have that to still feels you know even though I sort of uh, you know, I get the odd one or two, but I don't get many. But you know, uh, also, what should thing, you be? You're but right. there is a thing of like, you know, is that something that a lot more women than men are going through? And I just didn't quite realise that's another sort of privileged thing. Or I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting. I think it really learning is thing. It's a sad thing. Yeah. Like it's a thing where. Yeah, it just is, it, you know, and people say it like, well, that's that's being a woman in comedy. And you're like, ah, yeah. yeah, no, that shouldn't be that. <laughs> you know, or like that's yeah. being a public. Yeah. Yeah. But I think um, the good thing is, like, I realised something on, in my show, which was really nice, which I was saying, which is I don't feel the slightest bit uh, dampened in terms of I feel as confident on stage. I feel as confident in my political views and my opinions. And that's kind of wonderful. Like, I don't really feel feel like I want to be in line much at the moment but I don't feel like frightened by it really yeah yeah I just feel like deter- I don't feel deterred yeah cool so that's and good. do you feel like you're missing out on anything no. from being online at all like not a it? soul nothing nothing at all so this is always the good message so I quit Facebook like a year and a half two years ago so good, and right? whenever I say that in a talk and everyone's just eyebrows raise at me uh, I just go, the good news is, life is fine on the other side. So I think that's quite a nice to message say, to give people if they're kind of thinking about giving it a break for a bit or quitting oh, it for a bit. Life's okay, right? You still so get invited better. to stuff and have a nice time. And You yeah. miss nothing. You miss arguments. <laughs> yeah. Like someone's like, well, didn't you see when mum said this? And they're like, no, I did not. But like, I used to do it on stage and I'd say... I killed my Facebook and then I'd be like wow you must be so brave and I'd be like yeah I guess but like I think it's I, I almost feel like that might be the future is like get rid of your online life yeah but then I don't know because I also feel like it's been wonderful to just feel like I can say things and people agree and mm. feel like I'm sharing things so there needs to be some balance but what really needs to happen is that Twitter needs to stop verifying people who are on the far right and that YouTube needs to change the culture and needs to stop enabling people to put far right hate videos up and stuff like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> which we could spend a whole hour just getting yeah. into that stuff um, we're going to let you go so Josie thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy oh thank you for having me I'm sorry I wasn't I was talking more about stress than busyness but yeah and also just to say thanks for what you're doing with Arts Emergency like I think it's fantastic and if you haven't checked it out we'll put that in the show notes as well and uh, yeah check it out thanks that's thanks my absolute pleasure and my jury <laughs> So thanks again to Josie for being on Beyond Busy and she was very apologetic after we finished recording there about saying I'm not going to be on Twitter I'm really sorry I'm not going to be able to help you promote it and I was saying listen you know uh, my expectation is never that Beyond Busy guests are the ones who are doing the promotion it's always my job to promote the episodes but also it's like with the amount of shit that you have to deal with on there I mean it's really 
you know, it's quite astounding and, you know, just violent in every sense, really. And uh, it got me thinking a lot about gender, just the way she was talking there at the end. You know, it does always seem to be, when you think about politicians and other public figures, it's the women who get the more violent abuse on Twitter, you know, in terms of just violent language and uh, really disgusting stuff that they have to deal with. And, you know, it's one of the sort of weird sort of privileges about being a man is that you don't actually have to think about gender that much or you don't think about gender that much and you know whenever I do I always come to very obvious feminist conclusions and make no apology for that but it is one of the things isn't it about being a man that you just don't have to think about it as much and I just think there is so many underlying biases in a lot of that stuff Um, it also got me thinking a lot about gender in terms of work-life balance and um, coincidentally then I heard a thing uh, Oliver Berkman is doing a thing on uh, Radio 4 uh, which I think is a repeat actually uh, but it's all about busyness and uh, there's a, a sort of study that looks at you know why are we busier than we used to be and it says actually we're no busier than we were we do basically the same number of hours and all these labour saving devices you know dishwashers and vacuum cleaners and washing machines and all this hasn't actually saved us any time you know we basically work the same as we worked before um, the main shift has been in genders. So, um, you know, women work, work a lot less in the house and a lot more at work in terms of paid work than they used to. And men work a bit more at home and pretty much the same or a little bit less in paid work. And so men feel like they're they're busier because they're doing all this house stuff. But actually, the labour's just kind of shifted around. And it also said that women just generally work a few more hours than men just in general you know so yeah it, it just got me thinking a lot about just some of the gender assumptions uh for beyond busy it's also something that a, a really good friend of mine joe raised with me before you know um just make sure there's a, a kind of gender component to the book beyond busy when you get around to writing that and it really at the moment i do feel like it's a when am i going to get around to writing it i really need to start talking to my publisher and having a conversation about some scheduling things they put it on hold for quite a while for me uh, so yeah it's it's an interesting one isn't it and one that I'm going to need to I think particularly as a man tread carefully with with the book and also probably talk to lots of other people about and you know really just uh, you know form some views through consensus I think and, and through sort of lots of different conversations so yeah just something I've been thinking about over the last uh, couple of weeks or so uh, so yeah that's it for this episode of Beyond Busy just as I was saying that my phone beeped and it was Mark Stedman the producer of this podcast and that's presumably my sign to say I am late delivering this outro to him so I better uh, stop uh, recording this and get it over to him so that we can get this out uh, so yeah thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond Busy uh, you can find the show notes for this episode and there's quite a few with this episode um, so if you want to just follow up on some of the stuff that Josie is talking about I'd really implore you to go and read the entire Arts Emergency Manifesto which we'll put a link to uh, and also um, the Rebecca Solnit book is really good as well uh, but yeah do check out the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com that's getbeyondbusy.com and I am, for now at least, on Twitter, at Graham Walcott. And uh, we have a Facebook page uh, for my author stuff as well, even though I'm not, I don't exist on Facebook. Um, so that gets that gets man- managed by, by someone on my behalf. Uh, and thanks also to Mark from uh, Bloomsbury Digital for his patience <laughs> with me being slightly late in recording this outro for him. 
and uh, also to all the team at Think Productive for uh, helping spread the word and uh, getting the word out about Beyond Busy. So if you haven't listened to us before, please do subscribe. And also at getbeyondbusy.com, you'll find links to all the previous episodes. So there's a couple of other really good ones with other comedians and actors and uh, lots of other stuff. I was talking to Josie after we finished recording about the one with Gerald Ratner, which if you've not heard, is still one of my favourite ones. Uh, and she was just like, wow, that's a story. And I was like, yeah, it really is. So go and listen to the Gerald Ratton one if you haven't listened to that already. And uh, I'll see you in two weeks' time. I'm going to be in Toronto in two weeks. So I'll have to do that ahead of schedule. I'm just thinking out loud now. You don't need to hear all this. Uh, but yeah, there'll be another one out in two weeks whilst I'm in Toronto. And until then, take care. Bye for now. Bye.